Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrej Matišák, and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Davy Pravda. Are we afraid of a civil war in America? I don't fear civil war so much, as I fear more of the riots, more of the kind of violence we saw on the Capitol. This is what Professor Emerita of Communication at St. Louis University, Diana Carwin, told me. We discussed what happened on January 6, 2021, when a mob of supporters of, at that time, President Donald Trump attacked the United States Capitol. Why was Trump responsible for this assault? And why words do matter, but it seems that the facts don't. According to the program on extremism at George Washington University, the number of federal cases against individuals involved in the Capitol Hill siege stands so far at more than 700. Professor Karnen lives in Kansas, which is a red state. How does she assess the current Republican Party? And why does she say that some Americans want to see the U.S. that probably never existed? Listen to our conversation. January 6th anniversary. Is the GOP Trump's party? Polarization, divisions and radicalization in America. According to a poll from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, 71% of GOP respondents said they don't believe that Democrat Joe Biden was rightfully elected to the White House. Only 6% of Republicans said that Biden is definitely the rightful winner. How is this even possible? My first response is, how do you explain the inexplicable? (laughs) It seems counterintuitive. It's difficult to explain when there were 62 lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign, and 61 of those went against them. And there were judges who had been appointed by Donald Trump, including the U.S. Supreme Court, where there is a majority of Republican appointees on that court. There were Republican secretaries of state who said this was legitimately done. In Arizona, where they had multiple recounts. And the last recount was done by the Republican Party, and Biden actually gained votes again. The facts don't seem to matter. And how do you explain that Americans no longer look at the facts or look at the courts as a legitimate arbiter? And that's very difficult to explain, except that people don't want to be wrong. People want to believe what they want to believe. We're all that way. And with little things, you know, we don't want to believe things about our children that that teachers tell us. We want to believe these children are perfect, or we don't want to believe something about a spouse or a friend. And this has been carried to an extreme somewhat politically in this country, where I also think that there's a group of people that have a vision of this country that no longer exists and that maybe never really existed. What do you mean by this? What kind of America never even existed? This notion that we're a white, Christian, English-speaking country has never really been the case. We were not a white country in 1789 when we elected the first president, but we only considered African Americans as three-fifths of a person in our constitution. Women had no rights. Even most whites had no rights in this country. It was ruled by an elite group of men. You had to be 21 white and a property owner to vote. And so this has never been a country that has been this great bastion of 
democracy where everyone participates, where everyone is given equal voice. We've never been that way. And we have slowly added people with constitutional amendments to give them voice, to give them agency. But we also have had Jim Crow laws after the the constitutional amendments. And what we're seeing now is a fear that Donald Trump stoked among many Americans. And so people, like I said, it's hard for them to believe that Joe Biden got the largest number of votes ever cast for a president, because then that delegitimizes their own position, their own thinking, because it's hard for them to understand that people think differently. One of the things about politics is that people believe what they want to believe. They, they join one party or the other because it's closer to their way of thinking. And in this country, we've always had this attitude that you don't talk about religion and politics in polite companies, so at a dinner meeting or whatever. And as a result of that, we haven't learned how to talk with people who think differently or how to try to understand them. And I think the media has contributed. We've had Crossfire, and we've had this, that, and the other, all of these shows where you have the right and the left, and you even have C-SPAN with the Republican line and the Democrat line. So we've divided people into thinking that there are two ways of thinking. Plus, our schools don't do a very good job of teaching government and civics anymore, and also don't do a very good job of making people feel comfortable with opposing ideas to the point now where teachers are fearful of bringing up something that might be controversial because the school board gets contacted. And I've worked with high school teachers through the Dole Institute of Politics doing a program for them on how do you begin to have those difficult conversations? And they all go, I've tried that, but then I got reported to the principal. You have to look at this kind of bigger environment. We're going to be a majority minority country in the next 20 years. Is it important for Americans? That's fearful to people who have been in the position where they have been the ruling class or the elite class from the beginning, even though they weren't alone in terms of, of the makeup of the country. So it, it's very complex, and it's all come together with a Donald Trump who gave people permission to publicly support those kinds of thinking. According to another poll, this time by the Washington Post and University of Maryland, Americans pride in their democracy has dropped sharply from 90% in 2002 to 54% now. How do you read this? Is it because people realized that something is wrong? Or Americans are simply losing faith in democracy? I think it's a combination. People like me believe something's wrong, that there's a certain helplessness we have. Other people, the ones who believe that Biden didn't win, They think there's something wrong with the democracy, that it's been rigged. So what that poll really represents is not a single form of thinking, but depending on where you are politically, you either fear for your democracy or you already think your democracy has been lost. I think it represents people who fit into both categories. That would be my interpretation of it. On January 6, 2021, President Trump had addressed supporters shortly before the Capitol assault, telling them the elections had been rigged and that they should fight like hell. You are an expert on political communications. You know that words do matter. From your perspective, is Trump at least partly responsible for what happened a year ago? Words do matter. I mean, that that's my whole philosophy. I've said that multiple times. Words matter. And Donald Trump chose his words very carefully. He tried to preempt 
his failed election. Before the election, he was saying it was rigged. And if he lost, the only reason he would lose is that the election was rigged. And as a reminder, Trump was saying that even in 2016. He said the same thing in 2016. But obviously, 2016 wasn't rigged because he won. (laughs) And, And it's the same system. The rules were the same. The only thing that really changed, and this is where I think he could get people stirred up a little bit, was that the pandemic. Voting systems were changing, as we say, on the fly. People were adapting. People were afraid to get out and vote. They were afraid. I voted by mail. I didn't want to go out. You know, we didn't have a vaccine yet. So there was a lot of fear about even being in a public place. So that meant mail-in ballots, early voting, where you got your ballot and you could go deposit it in a box. And this is the thing that I think is difficult for people outside the United States to understand. We have federal election laws, but every state runs the election their own way. So like in my state, we have had early voting for probably four or five elections now, and probably a third or more people, even before the pandemic, voted early. You have jobs, you have kids, you have things going on. And so it's been a way to increase voter participation. A lot of states don't have early voting. Only about 30 had it before. So you had legislatures quickly passing kinds of laws. So Trump then could get up and say, this is going to be rigged because, and then they file the lawsuits based on some of that saying, well, they didn't follow the way the law had been passed, this this quick law, or people were voting for other people or voting twice or, you know, all of these things, because our election was kind of chaotic. Although it was run well, it seemed chaotic because suddenly there are new rules and everybody's trying to figure out the rules. So for instance, in my state, you don't have to have a reason to vote early. You just go. In Missouri, right next door, you could cross the street and be in the next state. And on one side, you didn't have to have a reason. But in Missouri, you had to have a reason and you had to have it notarized. You had to find what we call a notary in public to stamp it to say you legitimately could vote early. With all of that type of confusion and difference, it was very easy for Trump to make people believe that there was going to be an illegitimacy to the election, because what does all of this mean? But the courts looked at all of those state laws and said, no, they were followed. Trump is responsible. I don't think you can deny his responsibility. And the comments he made, you know, the tweets that were being sent to get people to show up, telling people, fight like hell, this was stolen, I'm your legitimate president, and this is what people wanted to believe, and then, you know, he sends them off to the Capitol. How do you remember that day? I mean, forever in my mind, I will remember watching that television when it started and being just dumbfounded because I go to the Capitol to do advocacy work for associations, and I know what I have to get go through to get into a building. And here they were just originally just sort of marching in. And it was like, what is happening? And then the riots started. Trump is to blame. And there's been some indication just in the last couple of days with what the commission's been doing with the people they're talking about, that even his son was trying to get people in the White House to get him to go on TV or tweet or do whatever immediately when it started. And he didn't do it. He waited, what, an hour or more and was watching it. There's proof now he was watching it. It was something he wanted to happen. I don't know that he wanted it to happen at the level that it did, but he definitely wanted that protest. He definitely wanted uh, something to be seen by the American people that his followers did not believe that what was going to happen at the Capitol to to finalize the election was legitimate. From your perspective, how do you define 
what happened. Was it a riot, an attempt on insurrection, or maybe something even worse? It was, I think, a protest that got out of control. It was a riot. I don't know if it was an insurrection, but it definitely took on the level of riot. But some of the people came prepared. You know, they were scaling walls. <laughs> I mean, they came prepared to get into that capital, no matter what it took. And that's, you know, civil disobedience. There are rules about who gets into the capital and how you get into the Capitol. You have to put everything through a machine. You have to go through a scanner. They were going to get into the Capitol one way or another, and that became very obvious. Plus, get people fired up. They had gone to this rally. They were fired up. They were emotional. And this is what Donald Trump was so good at doing, was tapping into people's emotions and emotions that have always been there. But the thing that's happened too with the electorate is that a lot of people who hadn't voted very often because they didn't like the system, they didn't trust it anymore, they didn't believe in it, they now are voters for Donald Trump. And Trump basically mobilized a group of disaffected people in 2016. And they saw him as voicing the things they'd been thinking for years, but the pundits, other voters, the people running didn't legitimize their thinking. You mentioned that before. What do you mean specifically? Whether it's racism, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's anti-Muslim, whether, you know, whatever it is, anti-intellectual, Donald Trump gave them permission to think that that was legitimate because he was saying the same things. And he, he tapped into that. That is a, an emotional kind of response anyway. So you get thousands of people into these crowds and crowds take on a mentality. You know, I've studied Hitler and Mussolini and, and the way that they would get crowds riled up. And the same kind of thing is going on. And I had never totally understood it until I went to a convention, a Democratic convention in 1988. I was lukewarm on Michael Dukakis. It was like, okay, you know, I'll vote for him because I prefer that. But I, I went to this convention and I got caught up. You get into this crowd of however many thousands of people were in that arena and I'm up applauding and doing things. And I suddenly thought, my gosh, I've gotten caught up in this. And I then began to understand how this crowd mentality, because I'd never, you know, football game is one thing or a basketball game. And, and that's, you know, there's nothing. But like I said, I, I legitimately began to get more excited about the candidate. You're hearing these things. And that's what has been stoked within an element of this population. Diana, previously, you pointed out that it seems that facts don't matter for people anymore. But the House Committee was established to investigate the events of January 6th. The idea was that this commission would be bipartisan, but the Republicans basically blocked this. What do you expect from this committee? Well, first of all, the fact that you couldn't even get Republicans to vote to have a committee, the fact that they didn't even want to vote to question what happened says a great deal about the fear that Republicans have about being voted out of office. It's a Democrat vote with only two Republicans voting with the Democrats and only two Republicans on the committee when there were supposed to be six, five that Kevin McCarthy would appoint and then Nancy Pelosi said she was going to appoint one. So this hasn't been legitimized technically by the Republicans in the Congress. They're not going to listen to any of it. They've already, you know, look what they've done to Liz Cheney. The other Republican isn't going to run again. They're not going to really listen to those voices and they're not going to listen to the Democrats. 
So when the report comes out, it's not going to have that bipartisan effect that it should have had. It's just going to further, I think, enhance the division. Moderate Republicans, there still are some out there, you know, will listen to it, will we'll believe it because they're embarrassed about what's happened to their party. I live in a Republican state. My county is very Democrat heavy. But other than that, the rest of the state is very Republican. But the moderate Republicans I know, they didn't vote for Donald Trump. And they're embarrassed about what's happened to their party, that it's been captured by the Trumps, by the whole Trump supporters, basically in terms of the commission. It's not going to say anything that we haven't already said. They will have plenty of facts again to support the impressions that many of us have that this was Donald Trump fueled it. Donald Trump, you know, his words did matter, that there were people in the Congress who supported these people. That's becoming more clear all the time. But that's all what we already know. They're just simply going to have the data, the paper trail to support impressions that many of us have. Academics who who are trying to be objective about this, Democrats, independents who agree that this was a legitimate election, pundits who also have, have written and tried to put the facts out there. But I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind. I don't think it's going to cause the Trump supporters to suddenly say, oh, it was a legitimate election, uh, that these rioters were really, you know, they had no basis, uh, that, that it was a riot and that Donald Trump did. I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind. But then was it a good idea to establish this kind of committee? I think they needed to, because I think it's important for the historical record, a hundred years from now, for people to not say, well, why didn't they investigate this? I'm one who likes to think in terms of history and leaving the paper trail. As an academic, that paper trail is important to me. When I write about something that happened even 25 or 30 years ago, I want to go find the primary documents. I want to see what's happened. And so they are digging into that. They're looking at text messages. They're looking at emails. They're finding out about conversations that people had. It's very important in terms of our history as a country that we look at this incident that was startling, you know, unlike anything that had ever happened before. Even the Confederates didn't breach the Capitol. And here were people who were taking American flags down. It was mind-boggling to watch, just tragic to watch. So I think this has to be done for that historical record to say we have done everything we can to explain what happened, to show that the people who are being prosecuted are legitimately being prosecuted. Because there are people who think they're they're patriots and they're mar- you know, they're political martyrs in some way. And so I think this is an important piece to add legitimacy to some of the actions that are being taken against some of the perpetrators. Let's see what will happen. But I think that the commission has its meaning. And of course, the Republicans had a chance to contribute to the work of the committee, but they basically decided to troll it. And talking about the GOP, David Frum, a former speechwriter of President George W. Bush, wrote on Twitter, quote, A year out from January 6, 2021, we have arrived at the point where considerable numbers of pro-Trump people declare their outright support for the attack and where the willingness to cover up for it is the test of orthodoxy for Republicans seeking nominations to the House in 2022. End of quote. I do not necessarily want to make a purity test out of this, but are people who directly or indirectly support conspiracies about Biden's victory fit to serve in the elected office? 
What's happened in this country is the primary on the Republican side is what matters. Most of these individuals voted against the commission because they didn't want it to be used against them in a primary. And what happens in primaries is we have very, very low voter turnout. And the people who do turn out are what we call the true believers. And so they're going to be the Trump supporters. They're going to make sure that we don't get these moderate Republicans in, that these people who were unfaithful to Donald Trump in any way, shape or form are not going to be sent back. So they do have a litmus test. You know, they have a test. And if you did anything that looked like you opposed Donald Trump or what he was saying or what his supporters believe, then you're going to get beat in the primary. And this is why some people are choosing not to run because they, you know, and, and look at Liz Cheney and where she is with all of this. And I see it in my own state once again, where individuals who used to be moderate Republicans who worked for people like Nancy Kassebaum, who, who voted with Democrats, worked with Ted Kennedy, who were bipartisan, they now have become so right wing, you don't even recognize them. This is sort of the test within the Republican Party now. And if you want to keep your seat, You've had to move over to this way, even if you don't necessarily believe all of it. Once again, I do advocacy work and I go up on issues related to immigration, international students, international education, and I will have people agreeing with me, but saying, oh, but I can't vote that way. (laughs) And this is what's happened to, to the Republican Party. I don't think they should be in office. I think anyone who in any way encouraged that riot, who supported that riot, who's now denying that it was even a riot, I mean, we've had people saying, oh, they were just coming to visit the Capitol like an ordinary day. It's like, how can you look at the tapes and say that? And it's a matter of, you know, kind of the big lie. You say something over and over and over and over again. And when people select what they watch, Fox News versus CNN, MSNBC, you pick what you want to listen to. I listen to both sides because being an academic, I want to know what the other side's saying. But most people don't do that. You want to legitimize, like I said at the beginning, your own thinking. So you look for something to support your thinking. But I personally do not think anyone who encouraged that riot should be elected to office. Including Donald Trump, if he hunts for the office again? We hear some Republicans saying if he will seek presidential nomination in 2024, it will be his. I don't think he should be. I think he encouraged that activity. People were injured. They were calling for his vice president to hang him. People died. Some of these police officers who testified had permanent damage as a result of it. Anyone who would encourage something that is going to potentially take a human life, which it did, injure someone, take away their ability to work or to perform and to breach our capital to try to take Nancy Pelosi hostage or whatever, That's a violation of the law. And they're supposed to support the law and the Constitution. And to me, that's a direct failure to do so. And they should not be in office. If Democrats did the same thing, I would say the same thing about Democrats. I think that even if Trump won't run in 2024, I suppose the potential Republican nominee will be somebody who will run on Trump's platform. Our party has to choose, said Liz Cheney. We can either be loyal to Donald Trump or we can be loyal to Constitution, but we cannot be both. But haven't GOP already decided that they want to be a Trump's party? I think Cheney's case is quite clear. She is conservative, representative from Wyoming. She is a daughter of (coughs) 
Darth Vader Dick Cheney, but she was ostracized from the party because she's under Trump. Yes, I think it is Trump's party. Even if people don't necessarily believe everything Donald Trump says, they believe they have to attract his voters to win in the primary and then to win. And in states like mine, winning the primary is essentially winning the election. We haven't sent a Democrat to the U.S. Senate in like 150 years. <laughs> I'm not sure I will ever live to see a Democrat in the U.S. Senate from this state. And there are other states like that. And, you know, Wyoming is one of those states where typically if you're a Republican, you're safe. But now because of what Trump has done to the Republican Party, Liz Cheney, even though she's a conservative, and I don't necessarily think that the Trump supporters are true conservatives. It's something different. They are not conservatives. They are really radicalized. And that's very different from legitimate conservative thinking, which is limited government. But it, it also means that, that you have, people have some rights. They have freedom to choose. The government doesn't impose. But these people want to impose a lot of government rules on people they don't like or issues they don't agree with. It's not real conservatism as Barry Goldwater, you know, back in the 1960s was a conservative, or even Ronald Reagan. And I think Liz Cheney is more along the line of a Reagan conservative. So in that sense, what she sees happening is the radicalization of her party. This is my interpretation. And also a violation of the Constitution. And she definitely has come from, especially you know, her mother is a scholar. And her mother has written some wonderful scholarly books. And so I think she has come from an appreciation of the Constitution and of the legitimacy of the Constitution. Her thinking has been influenced probably as much by her mother as by her father, would be my guess. But there is no place for that type of thinking with the Trump Republican Party. How much is this also about being authoritarian, anti-democratic? About being anti-democratic? Well, that's an interesting question. I guess I hadn't thought about it as anti-democratic, but it, it actually is. Because if you look at some of these new laws that states have put into effect uh, in terms of voting rights, again, those are anti-democratic. If you think about the pure idea of being democratic, it's to get everyone involved in the process, to have the people have a chance to speak. And these laws have certainly stifled some of that almost back to where we were in the 60s before the Voting Rights Act and, and some of the other changes that were made. And as I said, there's some, I think some of the thinking within the Trump camp is that there are just some people who shouldn't have those rights, you know, that we don't want them voting because they don't think like us. And it gets back to this us and them. That's a lot of what's happened with Trump is he's created an us and them kind of mentality in the country. And so the polarization isn't necessarily a result of political thinking. It's a result of, like I said, this kind of image of the country and, and what people think it is. We would consider this anti-democratic, but they don't view it that way. They view it as sort of getting back to our real democracy, what the country was really about when the founders put it together. And as I said, you know, that was definitely not a democratic country. <laughs> and they, they didn't consider themselves a democracy. They considered themselves a republic. And if you go back and you look at a lot of that writing, it was a Republican, it was a small r, republicanism that they were promoting, not necessarily democracy, because they certainly didn't build that into the Constitution in terms of letting the people to have a real agora like the Greeks had of bringing everybody together. They, they didn't trust government. 
yeah, that's the other thing is that the founders did not trust government because look at the models they had. And so there are so many checks and balances built into our system with the three branches and the, and the way we check and balance everything because of that lack of trust. And they didn't trust the average person to be voting on who was president. It was only the elites who they allowed to vote. I think this is an interesting point, and people usually don't realize that. When I go to other countries and do workshops on elections and voting, people are just shocked when I tell them that when the country was founded, it was only about, what, 12%, 15% of the country that by the Constitution could vote. Because in new democracies, you know, when you have your Constitution, it's open to everyone. And that, you know, it wasn't until the 70s that 18, 19, and 20-year-olds could vote in 1920 before women. And you go down the list of what we've done, and it's been an incremental increase in democratic participation. And there are some who'd like to, to reverse that. Let's talk about this polarization. But my question is, is the U.S. really polarized? Isn't this more about the fact that the part of the society was radicalized, that these people drifted to the fire rate? Because if we talk about polarization, it somehow suggests that both parties move to the extremes, but I think it's mostly the GOP that moved to the extreme. And you suggested that what's going on is mostly on the GOP. And President Biden ran his campaign on the message of healing the divisions. But is it even possible? Part of this is context. You always have to look at politics within context. And part of the context is the pandemic. The pandemic has further divided the country. I tend to think with you it's more division than polarization because polarization suggests two positions. And there's a spectrum in this country. It's more a spectrum. The Republicans are radicalized. And then there are the people who are not radicalized. And so it's a division of kind of the Trump way of thinking versus a whole range of people in between that. Now, the Democrats have their polarized piece which is Biden can't even get the Democrat votes in the Senate because there is that polarization. And it's a little different polarization in the Senate than it is in the House because Manchin and Cinema, the two senators who are blocking everything, have very different reasons than, say, ultra-liberals like AOC and some of those other very, very liberal, progressive, they want to call themselves. The Democrats are the big tent. <laughs> There's a whole range of Democrats out there. Even though there's a range of Republicans, they all, in order to win, like I said, they have to kind of move over to the polarized right. So your notion that it's a divided country is a better way of describing it. And the pandemic has added to that because it's divided the country, not along political lines, but even those who follow science, those who will be vaccinated and those who won't. And it's still, you know, a majority of Republicans who are unvaccinated. So when you've got the pandemic adding to this something that affects everybody's life every single day, because this pandemic does. So it clearly creates also a political problem for President Biden. It's very hard then, I think, for a Biden to start bringing the country together when everything that's happening to you on a daily basis, you have to wear a mask to get into someplace or you're going to have to show your vaccine card, or they're talking about not letting you, you know, on a plane. And this is all being seen as taking away their rights and that, you know, they should be able to choose. And this gets back to this notion of conservatism that is legitimate conservatism, a certain amount of choice 
that you have as a citizen. But there's also this notion that you can't do something that endangers someone else. And they aren't seeing this as endangering other people, especially children who are too young to be vaccinated, people who have compromised immune systems and cannot be vaccinated. You know, they don't see this as impacting someone else's life. So when this is what we're dealing with on our daily basis, it's very difficult to get people to think about political kinds of issues in the way that Biden needs to, to begin to unify the country. And what's really interesting is that this infrastructure bill. Why? The Democrats were able to pass it through the Congress. Even some Republicans voted for it. Republicans who voted against it are now going into their districts and saying, look at all the money that's coming in to help you with your with having better broadband and your road is now going to be fixed. They're taking credit for it because that's going to, that pothole that's been fixed or that bridge that's no longer something you're afraid to drive over is going to be fixed. And because people don't really stop and think about the fact that, yeah, this guy voted against it, but now he's taking credit for it. This is what's happening. So how do you begin to heal a country where it's difficult for people to separate out because Quite frankly, Americans don't pay the kind of attention to the detailed politics so they can be manipulated. I'm really looking forward to the political advertising against the Republicans who voted against the infrastructure bill and seeing how they're going in 30 seconds to explain to the public that you're being manipulated by these folks. They voted against it and they'll vote against it again. And there may not be a Democrat majority now to make sure that you get that millions of dollars into your economy. It's so complex right now. There's so many layers to what is going on in U.S. politics right now. And the pandemic has further complicated it. Yeah, definitely. But Diana, one last thing that is maybe too bleak to ask about. Are you afraid about the possibility of a civil war in the U.S.? Texas Senator Ted Cruz said that his state might even secede, and it doesn't matter if he really believes this or not. As we said, words do matter. On top of this discussion about divisions and radicalizations, Americans also have, in my opinion, too many guns, and we are witnessing a rise of activities of armed militias. Yeah, I I will have to say I'm fearful. I believe that because a large enough percentage of the population that's been radicalized, that the riot is an example. That riot could happen someplace else. That riot could happen in a state legislature. And it happened. A year ago, protests took place also in some states, I don't know, in D.C. Yes. Uh, About 30 years ago, before the breakup in Eastern Europe, I had a student who was from what was still then Yugoslavia. And she was in a class I was teaching, a political communication class. And about halfway through the semester, she stayed to talk to me after class. And she said, I think the U.S. will have a civil war before long. She'd been around for 1988 because it was, I think it was 88, 89. She was there. And so she'd been there during the fall for our very contentious 1988 election. And she couldn't believe that people were saying what they were saying about one another and, you know, just... She was fearful of staying in the U.S. when she watched the conventions and was afraid they were going to start shooting one another with the kinds of words that were being used. Because it was words at the time. And now we have people who are armed. We have people who even take whatever it was and bash it in through the windows of the Capitol where we've had physical violence. And I sort of laughed it off and said, she said, you're too big a country. 
you're too diverse and you, you can't hold this together forever. And I just said, but our diversity is what holds us together. You know, we understand we're diverse. 30 some years later, that diversity is no longer seen as one of our hallmarks, as one of the pieces of the glue that holds us together. That diversity is being used to divide us. And that makes me fearful. And the fact that there are so many guns. We've had these radical groups for 40, 50 years, but they didn't have anybody politically who were legitimizing them. They were fringe. Many of those same kinds of people now have been more legitimized politically. I don't fear civil war so much as I fear more of the riots, more of the kind of violence that we saw at the Capitol. That, that's what I'm fearful of, that especially the frustration that is going to exist if people don't feel like they are getting their rights on both sides, that the legislatures have taken over and are not listening to the majority. And what's interesting too, you know, if you look at polling data, majority of people favored that infrastructure bill. Even Republicans favored that infrastructure bill. Maybe not the size of it, but the concept. But that didn't matter to the Republicans, even though their constituents agreed with it. Same thing in my own state. The majority of people agree with certain things that the legislature will never vote for because they're fearful of losing their primary. And that's what it's come down to, unfortunately, is it's more important for people to win an election and to keep their power. And Liz Cheney was right. You can't do both of these things. You can't look at the Constitution and whether you're representing it and the people and also then support what Trump and some of his supporters stand for. Can't do both. So she took the place of conscience. And there are other Republicans at the state levels who are doing that. Some of those attorney generals who said Republican, like in Georgia, said this was legitimate. This election was legitimately run. They're not, they're probably going to get beat. And that's the unfortunate thing. I will have to say, you know, I have a sense of helplessness right now. I can sit back and analyze it. And how do I change it? How is a single one voter in a state where I'm outnumbered, you know, do this? And it's hard to see right now. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.